If you are looking to elevate your leadership and drive your nonprofit forward, I invite you to subscribe to the Successful Nonprofits newsletter. Every week, I curate exclusive shareworthy content that sparks inspiration, innovation, and conversation. From the latest trends to timeless advice, the weekly email newsletter is your all-access pass to a treasure trove of resources. But receiving the newsletter is not just about staying informed. It's also about getting our best content first. Subscribers get first access to our newest downloadable templates designed to propel your leadership and amplify your impact. And that's not all, my friend. We are constantly working on new ways to support you and your mission. So as a subscriber, you'll get updates on our latest projects, opportunities to participate in surveys, and a say in the topics that we tackle next. You will essentially get me as a consultant, coach, and confidant in your inbox, ready to help you navigate the challenges of nonprofit leadership. So if you're an executive director, board chair, or a nonprofit leader who believes in making a difference, join me as a newsletter subscriber. Visit SuccessfulNonprofits.com forward slash newsletter to sign up today. And now, friend, let me take you to the episode you've downloaded. Welcome to the Successful Nonprofits Podcast. I'm your host, Dolph Goldenberg. Today on our show, we have a guest who is the expert on a subject that is crucial for all nonprofit leaders, and that is trauma-informed leadership and trauma-informed care. Matt Bennett is the founder of Bennett Innovation Group, where he has created a platform for his writing, speaking, and training programs. Now, I think I probably heard Matt at a conference maybe about 10 years or so ago, was really impressed with him. And sometimes the universe just brings people back around. So a funder of a client had recommended that that client get in touch with Matt Bennett about maybe doing some staff development. So the client and I had an hour-long phone conversation with him. And quite honestly, I wish that I could have taped that conversation for this podcast because it was solid gold. And because he was that engaging and that informative listeners, at the end of the call, I said to him, gee, I'd really love it if you came on the podcast. And he generously agreed to do so. Now, we both have kind of busy schedules. So I think that was probably two months ago or maybe even three months ago. But we're here today and we're recording the podcast. Now, Matt offers a wide variety of training that spans from trauma-informed leadership to his trauma-sensitive school series that helps organizations understand new research and findings about neurobiology and how they can implement practical strategies to have a better organization and to make a better world. Matt has also authored the book, Connecting Paradigms, a Trauma-Informed and Neurobiological Framework for Motivational Interviewing. With his practical experience in leading nonprofit organizations and educational institutions to develop research-based solutions to improve the health of individuals, and by the way, those individuals not only include those served, but also team members and staff members, organizations, and systems. So I am so excited that Matt is joining us today. Hey, Matt, welcome to the podcast. Thank you so much. It's a real honor to be here. Now, Matt, you seem to train nonprofit organizations all over the country. And if I recall correctly, you have several different workshops 
And in those workshops, I'm sure a lot of topics probably come up. What would you say the topics that arise most frequently are? Great question. Really, one of the things that I've really come to appreciate, and this comes a lot from my own experience as well, and it's kind of driven me on this mission, is really understanding why so many people in our communities are struggling. Why do we have growing populations experiencing homelessness, the opiate epidemic? I know our shared work in HIV, you know, all these real social problems and what is really behind those. And one of the things that really drives me is, and why I love doing the work that I do is, now that our science has got better since I got educated in psychology, I call it the dark ages of psychology in the late 90s, since the functional MRIs have come on board and we, we get to the brain and the biology in a whole different way, we really understand the why behind a lot of these behaviors in ways previous generations could have never maybe even guessed at. And I spend a lot of my time in a, talking to a group serving a vast variety of folks, even nonprofits you might not usually think about, like libraries, for example, of we want to help these folks, but in some ways we don't really understand them enough to know what they need. And, and so my thing, whether I'm talking about motivational interviewing, which is helping people make change, trauma-informed care, which is helping people heal from traumatic experiences, it's really that understanding that I think people are uh, really hungry for. And when you start these conversations, you can see that passion come back up in really cool ways that I know, or at least I hope and I hear about stays with them long after I get back on a plane and come back to Denver. I love that. Now, Matt, in what ways does trauma-informed care, in what ways does that impact leadership, sort of as that trauma-informed leadership model? Beautiful question. So trauma-informed care started with the folks we were trying to serve. But one of the things people realized early on, and I had my own experiences, you would start to learn about the impact of trauma on survivors of sexual abuse, military folks coming back from war, domestic violence, poverty. So we would learn all about this and we started to learn about how their brains, and even we can say their DNA, if you look at epigenetics, is different after repeated trauma. And it changes how we behave, how we think, how we see ourselves, others in the world. And so many people were coming back from that and saying, yeah, the folks, we understand the folks we work with and are trying to help so much better. But what about me and my coworkers? What about our trauma? And so one of the big realizations a lot of us were having early on in the movement around the kind of early 2000s was, what about us? So as that sort of evolved, we got the terms now of vicarious trauma, secondary trauma, because we know that emotions are contagious and trauma and the emotions associated with, we know we can be traumatized just by hearing people's traumatic stories over and over and being exposed to the behaviors and the symptoms of the mental illness and other things. And that's really why you see the last survey I saw, physicians, nurses, social workers, teachers, and principals were one, two, three, four, and five for the most burned out professions out there. And I think it really speaks to that emotional intensity. So I felt like around 2002, 2003, I found myself with a, a kind of interesting skill set. I had gotten a, a master's degree in counseling psychology and started out my career working as a therapist. 
and got promoted to leadership very early on in my career, most people would normally read a book. I decided to get an MBA in healthcare administration or a master's of business administration. And so I had this unique uh, skill set is I had the psychological background in the, the growing understanding of trauma and trauma-informed care. And I really saw that most of the books written in leadership did not really tell me what I needed to do. It didn't tell me how what happens when trauma walks through the door each day, what happens when patients or students or clients we're trying to help might attack us. You know, I've been spit on bit. And how do we keep morale up in those organizations? When people are hearing stories of child abuse, manning crisis lines, how do we keep this staff not only healthy and not traumatized, but how do we keep them producing and bringing their best self to work every day? And so I believe we have the hardest jobs in leadership, and I've been trying ever since then to create models to help leaders really look at their work and think about it in a different way. And to add on to that, Matt, I think one of the things that we often are not considering when we're in leadership is that most of us that choose to do this work choose to do it because we at one point in our lives were really close to that work, i.e., we experience some of the things that maybe some clients are going through. And I know I've done a, a significant amount of work within the LGBTQ community and LGBTQ organizations. But a lot of the people who are attracted to that work are attracted to it because they have felt marginalized as an LGBTQ person. And then they walk into a workplace, which at times can be a marginalizing experience. And there's this disconnect where they think to themselves, gee, I thought I was going to feel embraced every day that I'm here and I just don't. And not only that, but I'm having people that come in every day and reminding me of some of the trauma that I've experienced in my life. Absolutely. And there's a great resiliency for those of us, including myself, who've experienced hardship in, in our own lives, be that childhood or later on in life, because people were able to support, help us, that we're called to give back. And so on one hand, there's a great resiliency there. On the other hand, there's an incredible vulnerability there as well, both for people that come from the communities or come from histories of trauma. And, and really, as I like to say, uh, this work can traumatize the healthiest individual in the world, too, uh, because we're not really created in some ways psychologically as human beings to sit with people and hear story after story about racism, discrimination, stigma, abuse, war, you know, and all those things. So it's a challenging work for all of us, but I think you're absolutely right. So many of us have, have been in that client, that patient role at some point in our life. And again, that can be our greatest source of resiliency, but also can be a huge vulnerability as well. And so leaderships and, and nonprofits really need to at least, at the very least, be aware of that. But I really argue have strategies to really proactively and reactively respond to that that environment and create healthy uh, work organizations and cultures. So let's talk about some of those strategies. Like, what are some of the top things that you feel leaders and organizations should be doing to respond? First and foremost, and if you take one thing away from this podcast, please, this is the one you have to take, that you are the role model as the leader for self-care. I challenge direct care workers. You're the role models for your clients and students. If you're not well, you're failing in a big way. So your own self-care is foremost. If the leader's burned out, if the leader's experiencing trauma, as stress and trauma just spills everywhere. So leaders' wellness and self-care has got to be a priority because your staff are also going to look to you 
for how to act. If you're working 12 hours a day every day, you'll watch your staff. They'll work longer and longer each and every day because you're setting that role model for them. Other things that I think are, are key just for the individual is mindfulness is a big thing, not just mindfulness as a yoga practice or a meditative practice, but also keeping our calm in the storm, so to speak, being that in some ways I like to call it a work secure base, that we're the person that's steady. So when our staff struggle, we can be there for them and offer them that support and, and just our discipline as well, showing that we're the role models for professional development as the foundation for learning community. And really all that's designed along with honesty, humility are, are a couple other big things. I think the goal and the focus, and, and I love to get to the nerdy business strategy stuff. The sure, I know you do a lot of work with strategic planning, shared vision, shared values, hedgehog concepts, big, hairy, audacious goals. Don't get me started. But all that's got to be built on a foundation of trust and psychological safety. So a lot of leaders want to get to that big strategic plan or, or that big initiative or starting a new program. But all that, if the trust and psychological safety aren't there, we're building some castles on some real shaky ground. So with the psychological health of our workforce are always very vulnerable because of the nature of the work, it just takes an additional focus on our part to always be looking to maintain, build, and strengthen, again, that healthy culture and climate built on trust and psychological safety. I want to go back to one of the points that you had mentioned. You talked about the fact that the the leader is kind of the person that keeps things stable. And I say this all the time. I do a lot of chief executive coaching, and I say this all the time, that when the leader panics, everybody else panics too. Because everyone looks and goes, oh my gosh, this person is worried. And this person probably knows things that we don't. Now it's time for us all to get really worried and really nervous. Absolutely. Again, we're that role model. There was an interesting study, and I don't have it right in front of me, but it was like 73, 75% of the time during meetings, people are looking towards the leader. Again, this is all unconscious behavior. Nobody's knowing they're being monitored for this, but we're looking to the leader about how to respond, how to be in the organization, how to handle stress. So I think if we see ourselves as that role model for wellness, for professional development, for stress management, it's such a key thing. And I love the concept of if we don't, then that stress spills and really overwhelms everybody. And again, there's plenty and a lot of nonprofit organizations that can overwhelm you on a good day. So this is the real challenge that unfortunately you don't see enough books written, I think, about this, of how our workplaces have this intense psychological work, emotional work, emotional label are involved in it and some of the additional difficulties. Absolutely. So you talked also about leadership self-care. And obviously you said, hey, don't work 12-hour days. What are some other things that leaders need to be cognizant of, not just for their own well-being, but to make sure that they're setting that example? I think something we too often, especially in the leadership level, uh, because of our stress could overcome is start with wellness. Diet is one. I'm not going to lecture anybody about diet, but what you put in the mouth becomes the food, your energy for your brain. Exercise is critical. When we're stressed out and most of your listeners' jobs are highly stressful, we release that cortisol. Best way to get that out of the body in the short term is 
to go be active. Stress uh, historically has been a trigger for activity. And then sleep. You want to do one thing to bring your best self to work the next day, get that eight hours of sleep for most of us. So so some of it's just the basic stuff. And then I mentioned a mindfulness practice. There's some amazing research around it as far as maintaining mental as well as physical health. Also like to really live your passion. What is it that brings you to this work. I really worry about people in the nonprofit arena that lost their why. Why do they come to work? What is it about them that draws them to this work where you've usually sacrificed fortune and fame, so to speak, to serve your community? What is it about that and keeping that in the forefront of your mind? And I think if you're, I know if your staff sees you living your passion, talking about your passion and giving them a chance to talk about it as well, it's going to really, again, bring that energy into the culture. One other thing from the personal side that I see really stick out in the research is making sure that we have a we surround ourselves with people that love and care about us in our personal life. We can talk about the importance of the organizational culture, but we also know the people that surround themselves with folks that bring joy and love into their life, stay healthier, live longer, deal with stress better. So a lot of this is just fundamental stuff, but I see too many leaders and too many, honestly, people that just work in nonprofits because of the stress, we start to neglect our own wellness. And, you know, as much as I want everybody to be healthy, that's one part of it. To me, self-care is quality care. Self-care is will determine the uh, level and quality of work we're able to do. And so many of your listeners are out there, whether they are directly saving people's life, like medical care or trying to help people get housing, get off drugs, all all those key things. I mean, the quality of our work determines a lot of life outcomes out there. So yeah, self-care is quality care. And again, the leader is the role model for that. Matt, I want to put a pitch in there around surrounding yourself with people who care for you. I need to put a pitch in there for friendship. Most of us as adults, I think this is especially true for men, but I think it's true for all adults. In our 20s and early 30s, we have a friend group. And then as we move into our 30s and our 40s and our 50s, that friend group kind of dissolves. People have families, people move away because of their careers. And I don't want to sound like you're replacing a friend, but people are not building new friendships when those friendships kind of just, you know, there's no big bang that ends them. They just kind of dissolve and you just kind of fall out of touch. I know just speaking in my own life, I I have been just so incredibly lucky across cities and across decades to be friends with people, gosh, now for, in a lot of cases, two or three decades. And again, across cities where I've moved across the country and we're still friends. We still fly to see each other. One of my best friends who happens to be straight, every year he and I do what we call a mancation. And we go away without our spouses (laughs) for a long weekend somewhere and we have a mancation. We'll try to meet for breakfast six to eight times a year just to kind of keep that connection. And, And it's just sort of this knowing that there's these people other than my spouse, or if you got kids, which I don't, but you have your kids, other than your spouse and your kids, there's this sense that like, yeah, there are people who really just give a darn about me. Yeah. My work in homelessness has really just shown how lucky I am that I, I just get to hang out with people that bring joy into my life. So many people I work with in extreme poverty are just trying to survive and everything's about survival. Most of hopefully your listeners are in a place where they can have a, one or two people, at least in their life, that just brings them joy. And I think we can kind of get pulled that after a a hard day of people work, the last thing you might want to do is talk to one more person who, God forbid, they have a problem as well. 
but it's the healthiest thing we can do. So I, I just totally back that up. And there's so much great research out there that shows the stronger your social networks are, the more joy those folks bring into your life, the healthier you are. Jim Rohn, who's a author who puts things much more succinctly than I do, says you're the average of the five people you spend the most time with. And that's a good challenge, I think, to your your listeners are, are thinking about those people. And if those folks bring joy into your life, I joke that I have a friend named Travis. He used to be in our field, but now he works at Whole Foods baking bread. And his joke is I take my work home with me every day. Just a guy I like. He wasn't in, always in my top five, but I do everything I can to get them in there because he just brings such great energy and usually good bread every time I see him. So. so it's funny, like from my perspective, if I can give listeners maybe a homework assignment, if there's someone you were really, really good friends with 10 years ago and it just kind of dissolved, did not end because of you had a huge disagreement, just kind of fell out of touch give the person a call, send them an email, try to get together with them, even if you're in other cities. I mean, we live in this miraculous time like the Jetsons where you can just Skype. And actually, I know our Skype is frozen, but for the most part, actually see people and see people's reaction. I really got to put a, a big pitch in for that. Like if you're taking care of yourself, make sure you've got a good friend network. Absolutely. And one more final piece of that, and this kind of goes over into the work arena a little bit as well, is I'm so lucky to have folks all across the country, and some of these networks might be more local for other folks, but just people in our field, I call them professional friends. They're more friends than colleagues, so to speak, but they're folks that I share a shared passion with, and I've gotten to know their families over time. I've gone on vacation with some of them over the time, but you know, I think there is something that draws us to this field and connects us through our shared values and shared passion. So those professional networks, again, can bring you a lot of joy as well. If you don't talk about work the whole time, make sure you, you work some personal friendship stuff in there when appropriate as well. And I think, you know, what you say with executive director, executive coaching, if you're at the top of the ladder, a CEO or an executive director, don't work in isolation and make sure you've got that professional support as well. I love the fact that you do talk about those professional friendship relationships because those folks can celebrate with you your professional successes in ways that your other friends, like the best friend I, where I was just talking about our annual mancation, he's in IT. He celebrates my successes, but maybe he does not understand them and vice versa. When he does a big integration, I'm like, oh my God, that's awesome. But I don't know really how much work that is and what kind of blood, sweat and tears went into it. Whereas I think with those professional friends, people can really genuinely understand and celebrate your successes because we all have times when we don't succeed, like all of us. I do, you do, every listener does. But also then people who who get it, like you did everything you could, it was a tough fight and you you lost, okay. But to me, there's power in those types of friendships as well. Absolutely. Again, whether we're talking about leaders or whether we're talking about staff, you know, on one hand, there is those personal things. So self-care is what you do to some extent outside work. And we need to look at that. And when I would challenge people, especially in the leadership role, but really if you're in a nonprofit is think of yourself more as an athlete or musician, somebody who needs to prepare for a performance. You need self-care is crucial because we know work stress can destroy you. And a lot of your listeners are in the social work, mental health, philanthropy area where we dominate a lot of the categories for burnout. So that's part of it. But the other part that I think we share some interest in too is 
How do you structure your work in a way that allows you to get things done? So a couple of things, and I, I want to point one out, and I'd love to get your thoughts on it as well, that I see leaders being terrible at. And I get the pull is one of the things that, that I like to see, if you can think about going into work each day, knowing all of our jobs are stressful to a degree. And I would say most of the, your listeners' jobs are more stressful than most other jobs in leadership due to some of the things we've been talking about is you sort of plug into stress when you go into work. And ideally, when you leave work at the end of the day, you unplug. And where I see leaders really both being terrible role models for this, but also destroying their own health is, you know, you go home, maybe you unplug for an hour or two, but you're working on dinner and you pull out your phone and you check emails or you log into your computer. So Ideally, what we really need to do, and this is research-based, this isn't just me saying to feel good, do this. This is definitely shows up in, in the literature is leaders need to disconnect from work. Now, if the building's build it, burning down, they need to call you. So there are some realistic things when you get up that chain of events that you need to be notified if big things happen. But you also need to train your staff about, okay, where is that line? I don't need a text about every little thing, but here's what I need if I'm not on right now. Because one of the things that's just killing us in our modern, and I, when I say killing us, I'm not exaggerating when I say that, is that instead of disconnecting and unplugging, you and I probably worked at one point where you didn't have work emails at home. And maybe you had a pager at one point. I'm old enough where I worked in a workplace where there was no email yet. Yes. <laughs> I, I actually remember when there was one shared email address for the entire organization. And it was an organization of 60 people. So yeah, there was no email at that point. I remember as well. And it's a great productivity thing. But at the same time, we've got to try however we can to disconnect. Again, the further you get up in the ladder, the more you're going to have to be called in at times. But so often now, and I yell at people, I'm not general about it anymore, is I'll be on a call about an upcoming training or consulting work that I'm doing, and I hear waves crashing in the background. And it's always one of the top three people in the organization is on this call while they're on the beach. And so whether it's in the evenings, whether it's on the weekends, we biologically need a chance to recover. And I, I just like to say, you go into work if you're a fan of the Matrix movie like I am. You can think about they plug that stress thing into the back of your head. You get stressed out throughout the day. It's just a normal part of work. Hopefully you can unplug and both de-stress so your recovery gets some of the stress out and you're not adding more stress to your cup. But when you, again, log into your emails, get texts at all hours of the night, you just got to think about you're plugging yourself back in so you don't have the chance to recover and you don't have the chance, you're putting more stress in your cup. So making sure that the multitasking stuff, we know we can't multitask, we've gotta to start to disconnect, we gotta to start to get focused back in our workplace. And again, leaders sometimes I see as the worst role models and just some of those basic workflow productivity pieces that we know can uh, destroy both our productivity, our creativity, and also our brain power as well. So Matt, I'm going to share with you my weekend email strategy, and then you can tell me I'm all wrong and I can live with that because I'm a grown up and I'm happy for you to tell me I'm all wrong. But this is my weekend email strategy. It is actually not at all unusual for me to do work on the weekends. But typically what I do is I typically schedule it and there's something specific that I want to do. Like, oh, I'm going to spend two hours 
working on this final strategic plan project for a client, you know, working on two hours, maybe on the intro on the strategic plan. And I'll sit down and I'll do that for two hours. And and if as part of that, I need to send an email, I'll send an email. Or if I need to see if someone has responded to me about an email on that project, I'll check and then I'll reply. But otherwise, like what I don't do is I'm, I don't say, oh, it's Saturday afternoon. This is a great time for me to get to email zero. Let me sit down and do it. But so I actually do typically work at least for a few hours every weekend and I schedule it. Now, I'll also share with you, you know, I think, you know, I do a lot of interim chief executive engagements. I will also share with you, I always end up having to have conversations about this where let's say I'm working on that document and I'm like, oh, I need to email so-and-so and ask them a question. So I'll email them and then 10 minutes later, they'll respond. And literally, I will either pick up the phone or I will immediately reply and say, when I email you, I don't expect an immediate response if I'm emailing you after hours. I'm just emailing you so that it's in your inbox when you show up at work. Please don't respond. But I'll share with you, people would always ignore that. So then I discovered this great app that goes along with Outlook, and it's called Boomerang. And it allows me to schedule emails. So then I can prepare that email and click send on and tell it to send it Monday morning at 6 a.m. or 8 a.m. or whatever. So just so you know, it's not at all unusual for me to do some work on Saturdays or Sundays, but it's always planned. And I'm always clear, like I need to do X, Y, or Z, and then I'm done. And the reality of, of a lot of executives I know, and I, I know you've, you've got a couple, probably at any given time, quite a few balls in the air that we do have to put in some work on the weekend. I think scheduling it And when you have to do it, when you don't have those sort of two days to recover, making sure that you're not just sitting around watching Netflix the rest of the weekend. Like my challenge would be if you have to do work on the weekends, try to keep it to at least one of the days. So you have at least one full day to just recover. And then if you're going to do it, my challenge is you better schedule some really good, healthy stuff in there as well. I want you to be working out. I want you to go for a hike, hanging out with friends and and really going to a concert to do that. Because, you know, again, what we see is those two days because of, for a lot of us, how stressed we're under, it's really in many ways, barely enough already. So, and a lot of that is just where you're at with your own wellness and health. Some weeks, honestly, I can work six days a week if I need to. I, I was training last Saturday. So, I was really working. I was doing a seven-hour training in San Diego. So I'm a guy who will work some weekends, some evenings as well. Whenever I try to do that, though, I try to make sure I have something to balance that off, that I'm I'm really trying to be healthy. And if I'm having to work, like say you have a big grant to put in, and I'm working Saturday, Sunday, a couple weekends in a row, really looking at scheduling a three-day, four-day weekend coming up to recover so we can manage our wellness. Because again, I think a lot of people, we just get overwhelmed. And I think your example is good too, is you would email folks and people would email you right back. So knowing that we're the role models for that. And if everybody sees us working on the weekend, our staff are probably going to start working on the weekend, at least a lot of them that want to impress us. And then we may have a more burned out workforce as well. So you can manage that. I like how you schedule it in. And if you can schedule something, again, that you're really focusing on your wellness over the weekend, if you are working, yep, you can balance that out. But always keep that insight. That's where I think mindfulness really comes in play, too, in in keeping an eye on how your body's reacting to stress, how your health's being effective. And if you can stay healthy and your habits are keeping you there, keep doing it. 
the other thing I'll share with you is I took all social media off my phone. So Facebook, LinkedIn, and Twitter. And I still do have both my personal and my work email on my phone. However, they're not on my home screen and I do not get any auto notifications. So again, it has to be intentional. So like if I'm bored and I pull my phone out, I don't just see work email and go, oh, let me check work email real quick. I've got a droid. So I actually got to go into all those apps and scroll all the way down to the O's and click Outlook. And that's a pain. And I'm not as likely to do it unless I'm really like, oh, I need to email somebody. For me, that's one of the other boundary things that I did was I really took a look at the apps on my phone and I just, I was like, I don't need this. I don't need that. Although I will admit, I do have the Washington Post app on my phone and I, when I'm bored, I do love to read what's going on with the impeachment. <laughs> and this is being recorded in November. The impeachment will, will be over and, and hopefully the Trumpster will be out of office at that point by the time this is released. But that's what's going on when we're recording this. There's a lot of stress out there, both in the media. And and again, we deal with things like racism, poverty, and all that's really heightened in in our communities now. So I have my uh, two shows I get my news from each day. And I give myself an hour, or at least as much as I can stand after work. And then if I want to catch up on what happened in the evening, I, I give myself about 10 minutes at the end of the day. But I found that I had to manage that too, or or watching the news became a little bit of an addiction uh, for me. So, but it's a good reminder. We've got to be careful of these political times and not get too overwhelmed by them. And I know traveling the country, I know a lot of people are really feeling that because I was in Southern California and Portland, Oregon, which a lot of like-minded people in those places, but you go some places in, in the, the South and boy, racism is still just everywhere. It's a, it is everywhere, but it's so in your face in so many ways. And so again, we got our clients, patients are being highly affected by a lot of these issues and we are as well. So again, keeping yourself healthy for yourself, but also those you're trying to serve too. So put yourself on a, uh, a manageable diet of news is my suggestion. My phone's currently on airplane mode, but when this is over, I'm going to pick up my phone and I'm going to take the Washington Post app off. I think you're probably right, actually. I probably do spend, and it's not even that much time. I probably only spend 15 or 20 minutes a day on it. But every time I do, it probably stresses me out. So thank you. I appreciate that. Now, Matt, I've got to make sure that we ask you the off the map question. All right. I'm ready for it. I've I've been waiting for this. Awesome. Because this way, our listeners will know the person behind the profession just a little bit. So Matt, I understand that you have some very specific ideas about heart rate variability. And I happen to have a Fitbit on my wrist most of the time. So now I'm curious. Talk to me about heart rate variability. Oh, boy, the can of worms you just opened. So uh, for your listeners, I've been working on my elevator pitch on heart rate variability. So I'll try to be as brief as I possibly can. So most of us are familiar with heart rate, and that is beats per minute. And usually what you hear is the lower the resting heart rate, the better. So you see some elite athletes with crazy low resting heart rate variability. And then if you go to the gym, you see those charts where you're in the green, red, yellow zones as you work out for your heart rate. Science has known since really about the 60s, actually it's been around for a a couple hundred years, but really from the 60s, we started to see another variation within that. And that was heart rate variability is the difference between the beats. So if you think about somebody with a low heart rate, they have less heart rate beats per minute and it gives more room for variation between those beats. 
Now, to get a little nerdy with you, that variation shows how well your autotomic nervous system is reacting to or recovering from stress. So the, the more variability you have, it shows a healthy nervous system. So if I can dig just a little deeper, the autotomic nervous system is the parasympathetic, the fight or flight nervous system, and the parasympathetic, the rest and digest nervous system. And so the, the higher the variability, it shows those two systems are working well together. In other words, your biology is in a very good state to take on something stressful or challenging, or if you've gone, whether it's for a long run or had a, a long day at work, your body's recovering well from that. The exciting thing about this biometric to me when I first learned about it is if I can tell if your body's reacting well or poorly to stress, that predicts a lot of different things. It predicts how well you're going to engage cognitively in a task, how productive you are. Studies have shown heart rate variabilities correlated to ability to socially engage with things like therapy, but also in education and obviously emotional regulation, mental health as well. And so what I got really excited about in my podcast, we had about a six week series on, on heart rate variability. You can find that at the Trauma Informed Lens podcast. And it's the first time I got really exposed to it. And you can kind of tell in the first couple episodes, I was like, yeah, this is cool. And by the end of the series, I was like, we need to have heart rate variability monitors on everybody. So I spent about six months trying to figure out how I could use existing technology like the Fitbit, for example, to really get this insight because we know those with trauma or experiencing burnout for work, that will show up in lower or poorer heart rate variability readings. So one of the things I got really excited about is it both gives you a reading of the condition you're currently in, but also if you get a baseline of a couple months, it can show how you're doing kind of, if you think about that's your trait versus your immediate condition you're in is more of a state reading. Even though I never thought I'd say these words come out of my mouth, because I couldn't find a way for nonprofits to really integrate the existing technology in, because so much of it's for elite athletes at this point. When you look at the WHOOP strap, elite heart rate variability, HRV for training, uh, this has been big in the athletic arena, but less so in the mental health piece of things. So. I can say out loud that uh, in about six weeks, I will be able to say that there is a heart rate variability app for helping organizations. And I hope this is the future of trauma-informed care where we can really measure the impacts of our interventions in real time. So instead of waiting three or four months to see if something works, we can start measuring the impact of our interventions much more quickly. I hope this is the future of self-care because Here's a biometric to say this is how you start an exercise program or intermittent fasting or mindfulness. Here's how it's improved your heart rate variability. And one of the things our app's doing as well is it's giving organizations the ability if their staff is taking measurements to look at the overall health of the organization, the programs, groups within both the client population, patient population, but also the staff as well. So the fact we have this biometric that tells us so much and actually can be, we're trying to keep this incredibly cheap and help people write grants to do it. So never thought I would say the words, but I will uh, hopefully have an app and a tech company started up here in the next six weeks. So that's very cool. You'll also be a tech entrepreneur. And that sounds really interesting. 
Yeah, I might be a B Corp because of one of your uh, past podcasts. No way. That's awesome. Yeah, that's I, got really awesome. I, I saw it, but I was like, yeah. But then once I listened to your podcast, I was like, I want one of those. So we might, uh, we're researching going that direction. So that's really awesome. Matt, I have loved having you on. I am looking forward to seeing this app roll out and seeing what it can do. It is such a really cool idea for nonprofits to be able to see a more real time and not have to wait three months or six months and then things have changed. And like, well, did it work or did it not work? That's awesome. I want to make sure that all of our listeners know how they can reach out to you. You've got several websites. Obviously, you've got one for your podcast. You've also got one for your book, Trauma-Sensitive Early Education. But they can get to all of that, including your blog, at connectingparadigms.org. And at that website, you can also find out how to book Matt if your organization would benefit from his facilitation, consulting, or speaking services. Once again, that's connectingparadigms.org. Make sure you check it out. Hey, Matt, thank you so much for being on the podcast. Absolute blast, my friend. Thanks for having me. Hey, listeners, if for any reason you missed Matt's URL, you can always go to the show notes, SuccessfulNonprofits.com. We will have it there. We will also link directly to his podcast, which you should totally check out. And by the way, I know you're a podcast listener because you're listening all the way to the end of this episode and also check out his blog. And you can do that at SuccessfulNonprofits.com. Right now, I know we are still a bit of a ways away from spring all the way being full tilt. But I am sure that you are thinking about all of the new life that is growing outside in the ground and maybe even inside of your organization. In my practice, I have the absolute pleasure of helping nonprofits grow and see all of the amazing life that some strategic planning or coaching can bring to fruition. So if you think that I can be a service, don't hesitate to reach out. I'm easy to get to. Just go to SuccessfulNonprofits.com. And of course, if you enjoyed today's show, do me a favor and hit the subscribe button on whatever podcast platform you're using. And if you're feeling just really great about the show, why don't you rate us as well and maybe even leave a little bit of a review. Finally, one last ask, listeners. I know I've already asked for one thing here, but one last ask. Be sure to connect with me on LinkedIn. I am fairly active there, and I reply to all messages that I receive. And I mean, seriously, even the salesy ones, I typically even respond to those. That's our show for the week. I hope you have gained some insight to help your nonprofit thrive in a competitive environment. I am not an accountant or attorney, and neither I nor the Goldberg Group provide tax, legal, or accounting advice. This material has been provided for informational purposes only, is not intended to provide, and should not be relied on for tax, legal, or accounting advice. Always consult a qualified, licensed professional about such matters.